Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Funding and investment into artificial intelligence topped 550 million Canadian dollars in 2018, but for the first half of 2019, the figure isn't even half that. Despite the decline, Canada is seen as one of the best places in the world to conduct research into a technology that will change the way we live and work forever. For insight into Canada's place on the world stage, the C.D. Howe Institute turned to the Senior Autonomy Engineer Manager at Uber, Inmar Giovanni, and to Shelby Austin, the Managing Partner of Growth and Investments and AI at Deloitte. I suppose question number one is more of a statement than anything else. It seems to me that, that Canada is actually really a, a world destination for artificial intelligence research. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I, I think it would be unrealistic if we sort of discounted what the U.S. and China have put forward in the space. So obviously, they are the dominant players. But in terms of where you would expect Canada to land, I would say we're comfortable in saying that we're certainly punching above our weight. It's actually been uh, fun for me personally to um, have been there while things were ramping up. So Canada has been in the academic circles punching above its weight for many years. But um, up until, let's say, 2012, it was mostly known within academic circles, within the conferences that uh, machine learning researchers would go to. We had um, a very strong... Uh, faculty here at the University of Toronto in McGill, um, and sorry, in University of Montreal and uh, and McGill, um, and in uh, Alberta. Um, and then a few years ago, um, neural networks uh, started performing really, really well to the point where it became in industry a uh, very usable technology. And so now we're seeing it everywhere. And because people coming from Canada are so um, technically strong and have contributed in the academic circles when companies, especially in the U.S., were looking to recruit people to lead uh, their various machine learning efforts. They recruited heavily from Canada. So if you look at many of the Silicon Valley companies, the people who are either heading um, the divisions or very senior in, in the divisions are often um, Canadians who have done graduate studies um, at the University of Toronto or Montreal or other places. So when Canadians find themselves in foreign lands applying their artificial intelligence trade, are, are they getting ribbed a, a little bit about the A's and the boots? <laughs> I don't know that. I'm not uh, like many Canadians, actually. Um, I am not, I wasn't born in Canada, I'm an immigrant, that's uh, why one of the reasons I actually like being a Canadian citizen and uh, being part of this community is it's a very diverse community and uh, a lot of people moved here either for their um, undergraduate studies or their advanced studies and uh, many decided to, to stick around and to become Canadians and, you know, with, uh, with AI becoming so popular, some have decided to move along. <laughs> And what is it that's given us the ability to punch above our weight? Uh, I think the honest answer to that is that CIFAR, amongst other uh, government and quasi-government organizations, were funding AI research during those uh, ever sort of depressing AI winters, when AI was really looked at as more of a fringe science than anything else. And I think what we have now is that we've really seen the benefit of us having landed on the right side of, of, of that research. And now... Um, seeing that what we have here is significantly more talent than we should, um, particularly, of course, with, you know, the Jeff Hintons of the world and the Yasho Bengios of the world, who are then able to, in turn, teach others within the Canadian border. 
You bring up Jeffrey Hinton, widely considered to be the godfather of big data, one of the most important data scientists on the planet. He's not Canadian. He came via the United States and via Britain at the beginning. It sounds like we're attracting talent from around the world. Yeah, I think that there are obviously particular social, uh, economic um, benefits to living in our, you know, living in our country. Um, which Jeff Hinton would be one of many who have sort of seen the benefits of living in Canada. Uh, and I think we really benefit from the fact that Canada is seen as a destination, not necessarily for, you know, having the, the best jobs, um, but by having uh, really like a great life to, to provide people here. So my personal perspective is that um, AI or specifically supervised learning using deep neural networks, because this is really the core technology that's um, been working um, very well. That is a real thing and it's helping us on a daily basis. Um, we all or most of us carry around a smartphone and it's running anything between 50 to 100 um, applications of uh, machine learning and we we don't even know that or we don't pay attention to that so so it's working and um, there's going to be more and more advances in that area and it's going to affect um, you know technology and therefore affect the the economy um, but there is also quite a bit of hype around it and a lot of people who um, are overclaiming, and I think we're kind of seeing the effect of this overclaiming because some of the bigger promises are not being necessarily delivered or not at the pace that people were expecting them. And so now we're at the point where people are asking, is this event for real? So, so it is for real, but uh, very specific aspects of it. And there's got to be some more education and deeper understanding of what can be currently done, what would be possible um, in a five, 10 year horizon, and what is mostly people just saying things that are not accurate. Right, there seems to be a lot of marketing hype around AI, but you know, even when I spoke to um, you know, Sandy Pentland at MIT, uh, he, uh, he, he pointed out that we're not really seeing true artificial intelligence. We're, that's probably 50 years away. Right now, it's simply that machine learning it's it's hype if someone's claiming that this is an intelligence that's artificial. So I think um, the issue with making this claim is um, that we need to define what artificial intelligence is, right? So um, John McCarthy, who is one of the fathers of AI, um, in the 50s, he says, as soon as it works, no one calls it AI anymore, right? <laughs> so there is a problem where the goalpost is actually, it keeps moving. And we don't understand intelligence very well, I, I dare say, like humans. Um, and so we are unable to define it in a way where everyone agrees on the definition and it's, uh, you know, it's immutable. And so what happens is um, we advance technology, we get um, computers to do things that were once considered the realm of, oh, only an intelligence creature can do it. And then we say, okay, then therefore it's not AI anymore. I think what people um, think about is what is sometimes re referred to as artificial general intelligence, which is basically something that's close um, to a human in its ability to reason, to use a vast amount of prior knowledge and memory to do many, many different things and, and so on and so forth. But I am not going to claim to be able to define intelligence uh, in a way that everyone will agree on. And so whether or not we have AI is a question of your definition. 
Do we have an understanding, though, about where we as a nation want to take this? Because at the federal level, we've received funding that's helped foster this kind of development. It's been pulled back at the provincial level. And so there seems to be this tug of war about just how important this is to the 21st century Canadian economy. Mm, um, I think this question is a little bit outside of where I spend most of my time thinking on. Well, I would think that um, what we're seeing here is that we really need to be focused on not just the supply issues, which, as you rightly point out, the federal government has been very, very good at you know funding research and research institutions. Uh, and we've seen that sort of same pullback in a similar vein at the provincial level. But really, what I think we, we need to be focused on across levels of government is really ensuring that we don't just end up with a place where we are known to be a great sort of bearer of AI talent. We also need to be bringing those jobs in the sector for more than just research. We need to be looking at applied AI and trying to, I guess, be the catalyst for economic growth for Canadian companies more broadly. I think it's critical that if we sort of forget what we're trying to do here, that Canadian companies will not have the competitive competitive advantage that they otherwise would have um, if they had sort of seen this through to fruition as we hope. And so uh, here's hoping, I guess, like government's taken some great steps, in particular the feds today, but there's a lot more to go. What is applied AI as you define it? Oh, goodness, great question. So first of all, you should know that I don't stress about the difference between algorithms. Uh, I don't I don't care if it's machine learning or deep learning for, for my comments. And the reason why I don't is because um, I really think it's just important that we refer to the broadest set of technologies used to solve clients' problems in this space. And so when I'm talking about applied, I mean applying those many technologies um, and many different techniques to actually drive value for Canadian companies, meaning Canadian companies can maximize their revenue more, they can defray their risk more, uh, or they can enhance their customer or citizen experiences more with the use of these technologies and techniques. So, Inmar, how is Uber applying artificial intelligence to me when I click the call an Uber button on my phone? What's going on behind the scenes with machine learning? For you. So Uber as an organization has a lot of different applications of machine learning, but specifically I am part of Uber Advanced Technologies Group, which is primarily um, focused on self-driving technology. And so right now for you as a customer, uh, you don't have exposure to that. But what we're doing here at the office is we're basically building the technology that will enable self-driving. And um, it's one of the technologies we believe definitely falls within the realm of what is possible um, to do with uh, machine learning and deep learning technologies, but it does not exist yet. So we are basically driving this technology forward. We're inventing algorithms that have to do with how do we understand a scene that um, is captured by, for example, cameras and other sensors. How do we know where are the cars? Where are the people? How fast are they moving? Where do we think they're going to be in the next time horizon? How do we plan the motion of the autonomous vehicle so that it obeys all the rules of the road so that there is no, um, obviously not, not um, coming into contact with anything uh, that it shouldn't? And finally, um, that it's a pleasant experience for the human rider within the, the car. So um, this is a big technical challenge, but um, it can be 
put into the the framework that um, machine learning and deep learning um, can tackle with um, enough data, with enough engineering, and with enough new innovation that we are uh, developing. And one of the ways in which we're measuring our progress is by um, looking at the academic research that's coming out of this lab. So everything that we do here gets published. And um, the lab started about two and a half years ago. We have over 75 publications in top academic conferences. And then the other way we measure it is by how much we're able to take this technology and actually transfer it into the real world into the cars, into the, the production system, so that it's not um, an academic prototype. It's something that we've showcased can work in reality. So these are the two important ways in which we're driving the technology forward. Are we spinning our wheels to a certain degree in, in preventing us from advancing autonomous vehicle technology more quickly? I, I hear Uber is doing this. Tesla is doing this, Ford, all the other major players, they all have their own systems. They're all consuming or generating a remarkable amount of data to create that big data set necessary to safely traverse any given point A to point B scenario. Is there not a system where we all just sort of pool our knowledge for the good of mankind or are, are we stuck <laughs> having to do it in these siloed independent ways? So, I mean, I wish there was an easy answer to that. And, and I would say this is not a special thing for self-driving. You could have said similar things about mobile technologies and, and maybe m many different technologies where you have marketplace competition, you have different companies, they're all working on the same thing. And wouldn't it be great if they can all just, you know, sit together and collaborate? Um, the markets don't exactly work that way. But I would say that um, we do think that it's important to collaborate. Um, and therefore, that's why we're very explicit about the academic uh, model that we have here, where the innovation that's being made is available for consumption by the public and by the competition. And we know that they read the, the papers and we know that they um, adjust their own um, thinking and technology based on the innovation that comes from here. And um, many of them have said that they will join this type of um, collaboration and so we're we're uh, very excited about that um, and there's also a new trend of um, sharing some of the data sets that are required so um, this is something that we are thinking about this is something that some other companies have already done so so I think for as much as we can within the context of um, a marketplace and a competition um, this is something that is on people's mind and, and we're trying to figure out the best way oh, to do oh, hang on so help me understand this are you telling me that in the future the autonomous vehicles that will be on the road they won't all be created equal much like today one vehicle manufacturer makes a more powerful muscle car than another and you might choose one over another in the future we're going to have to decide which vehicle we want to buy or we want to hail based upon which one is smarter <laughs> that's an interesting question i um i believe you know, um, right now, this is where things are going, because as you say, different companies are building their own solutions. Um, I think there will probably, I mean, as is different um, governments and different regulatory bodies are creating um, the equivalent of what we have for any mode of transportation, for safety, for, you know, the, the basic things that you need to 
showcase when you put um, one of these machines on the road. So the same way that there are many different manufacturers of cars, um, they still all have to have certain features, right? And so um, I assume, this is not my area of expertise though, I assume that um, all the work that's going on right now uh, in collaboration with the different companies working on the technology and governments and regulatory bodies, they will um, guarantee the, the safety and the intelligent enough uh, for all of these vehicles. I think as well that, that the corporate world is really waking up to the value of machine learning and, and taking a deep dive into that big data that many corporations generate on a day-to-day -day basis. But the, the difficulty comes in, in figuring out how to incorporate machine learning or AI into the day-to-day -day work processes. It, it's, you can't just turn to your chief data officer, your chief technology officer and say, okay, now we're all about AI. I think that that's a common mistake that people make is I can't tell you how many calls I get on a weekly basis where people say, you know, Shelby, I need some great AI. And I, the first question I'll ask back is, you know, why, why do you need AI? And the funniest answer is that they'll often say, you know, I need deep learning because I need deep insight, which of course, you know, doesn't necessarily one, one doesn't follow the other necessarily. And so I think we just have to keep coming back to what are the general business problems I am trying to solve at this moment in time? Am I trying to acquire more customers? Um, you know, am I trying to deal with a particular regulatory challenge? And then within those problem sets that are well established, saying, does AI or some form of AI provide me with an enhanced ability to solve this problem? And those are often, as you said, problems where you know there are tons of data, um, but mostly where we have the business stakeholder and executive out, um, sort of buy-in to really see these problems through. And if we don't sort of take these critical steps, then what we have is, you know, yet another sort of pile of junk when it comes to technology and, and claims that AI does or doesn't work in a given circumstance when, when really, you know, we're, we're pretty certain that the science does work in most cases now. And so now it's just a matter of figuring how to put it into context. So when I speak about applied AI, I'm really speaking about actually driving through the technological discussion through to a discussion of, of measuring business outcomes, you know, as a result of the implementations. It sounds too like when your phone rings and you've got that call on the other end of the line that the perception is is that AI is a product that you can go to a store, buy, stick on a shelf and plug into the system. Yeah, I think that that's what makes AI almost different than every other software out there. Um, I was speaking with uh, some others in the industry and someone put it best. And so this is not for me, but I love it, which is, you know, with most softwares, you end on deployment. With artificial intelligence, you're just starting on deployment. It's a really a matter of optimization and how much can I continue to reinforce and teach the system to continue to understand context and as a result, achieve ever greater results as we go forward. That's an also, also very interesting point is the context component to this because you know, the computer industry has had for generations the term garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> yes. And we need the corporate world to understand that your data sets may be big. They may be deep enough to apply machine learning to them. However, we have to ensure that those data sets are clean and that they're free of the biases that often build up over a generation of building that data in the first place. Yeah, so, so, so you're touching on what 
is clearly the most recent set of inquiries that those of us in the space go on, which is how do I ensure that my data is fair? And there are a couple different components to that. I think when people are talking about fairness, they're really talking about, you know, is my data diverse? And, uh, you know, do I have enough, um, you know, am I inadvertently discriminating against a certain class of, of people as a result of my historical bias in the data and or something else that's crept in? Um, yeah, the idea being that, for example, generationally speaking, the black community didn't get business loans the way a white community would. And if you just look at the data, it would suggest to you that a black person is someone you would not want to give a loan to based upon the historical data of not doing so. We have to understand that that is an inherent bias in historical data. Yeah, it, it, so so we it's absolutely something we have to be careful of. And I think one of the mistakes that people often make um, is saying, you know, I don't want the system to decide something on the basis of, you know, the color of someone's skin. And as a result, I'm going to remove that from the data set to ensure that that's not a criteria. Whereas that often has the reverse effect where you can't then check to see if the system's doing something wrong and you can't then sort of override the system's judgment if you haven't provided that particular data set into the mix as well. Um, there are much better frameworks that are coming out for this. Uh, you know, we obviously need to be really engaged on things like, you know, privacy, fairness, accountability, security. And I think some of the best work is the work coming out of the World Economic Forum. Um, I'm, I'm a bit biased because we worked with them on it, of course. <laughs> well, then you've probably spoken to Sandy Pentland of MIT, <laughs> who's very critical in, in trying to advance these kinds of bias-free machine learning systems. Yeah, and, and I also think that Vector's doing some really interesting work, which is a great Canadian example of where they're working with a whole bunch of parties in the industry to understand this. What I will say that we need to be especially careful of when we talk about the subject is if I am using an AI to look for something like fraud, I am trying to find a needle in a haystack. And whatever tools are out there with whatever biases may be in it, once we come down to the end of that analysis, I'm you know, shown a bunch of data and I can decide whether or not it's fraud or not fraud. So whatever the process was to get there, honestly, to me, it doesn't really matter because we're having a verification and decision on the basis of something that's binary it is or it isn't, and someone will assess that afterward. That's quite different than a system we might use to adjudicate someone's credit or you know, health insurance or something that's quite a bit more critical. So I think when we look at these systems and sort of the fundamental principle around bias and fairness, et cetera, and, and the reason I keep going to fairness is because bias can mean a whole bunch of different things like bias. Oh, sure. Um, and so, you know, when we look at these sort of fundamental concepts of fairness, I think that we can't necessarily apply the same standard across every scenario. So I think what we'll see coming from regulators and coming from our best thinkers on the subject will be this idea that, that it's not one single standard across AI. Uh, and we'll really start to see both sectoral and subject matter distinctions to ensure that we are creating the right balance between fostering innovation and also protecting our citizenry from, from the risks associated with those sorts of challenges. Regarding the bias, it is important to pay attention to it. And for every task you're trying to solve, there are different types of biases. Um, for, for my concerns, the biases are mostly around 
are we capturing a large enough variety of data um, so that when we train our algorithm, they understand the different aspects of the visual um, or perceptual word, world, uh, for example. So, um, so for us, the, the problems are more on the you know, the driving um, execution. Um, in other domains, it can be a much more social problem. For example, you know, when you're deciding whether to um, to approve a, uh, a loan or something like that, you, you take into account things that are more on the um, social aspect of things. And that's where you really need to make sure that you're not um, basing a algorithm that's trying to learn how to make decisions on uh, poorly, uh, poor rules that have been in place and reflect biases, because the biases are effectively the biases that we have. They're not coming out of nowhere. They're reflecting the biases that society already has, um, the way that we often only concentrate on what is familiar and known to us and forget that there are different um, ethnicities, diversity of thought, diversity of um, gender, and so on when we think about a problem. And one um, classical example is how when cars, when safety belts first uh, um, were introduced, they actually were designed with only men in, uh, uh, in consideration. And so uh, they actually um, hurt many women and, uh, and injured many women. And there had to be uh, an iteration of the engineering work to ensure that they're actually fit for all um, adults, and as we all know, they're not meant for children, right? So, um, so engineers designing systems need to make sure that they're considering all of their use cases and um, and introduce all of that into their systems and their testing. And um, that I think is again, it's it's quite case specific. What do you need to worry about when you're solving for this particular system? What are the biases that we might have and how to correct against them? So as the corporate world has an obligation to effectively deploy artificial intelligence based systems, what role does government play in helping make that happen in the first place? Yeah, so, so a few things here. Um, I certainly think that we need operational certainty. Like right now, we have a whole bunch of businesses who don't really know really where the road is going on this from a regulation perspective. Um, in addition, we occasionally see that AI becomes a bit of a political issue um, rather than being seen as something that is most certainly a part of the future in any world. Uh, and as a result, sort of needs to be looked at quite carefully. And so I think um, we need to provide companies with some signposts about where the road will go and make it you know, much less of a political issue than, than, than it would be seen right now. Um, number two, I think what we need to do is really ensure that we're increasing the literacy of Canadians. And you know, absolutely, the government has a role here to play in educating in every forum all the time about what AI is and is not. Uh, you may have seen our research that showed that only 4% of Canadians are really comfortable in describing what AI is, um, which is particularly troubling considering you know, we as a country believe that we have a potentially significant competitive advantage in this space. And in order to be able to harness it, we really need to make sure that our citizenry you know, understands it. Um, and then I think uh, that we also need to ensure that we're promoting levels of investment and really fueling, um, you know, really fueling the public's ability to access, um, let's say, non-sensitive data of Canadians starting to see um, more promotion of AI and use of data by our governments as well. What areas does the government need to support AI? 
Well, I mean, I, you know, for example, why doesn't the government provide much more open access to public data sets for researchers and for nascent businesses that aren't particularly sensitive? Um, you know, an example might be of the data of migration patterns of certain animals. You know, there, there's nothing particularly personal about it. There's nothing really sensitive about it. And it could really help us both further the research and provide Canadians with real open data sets um, that they can use to start working on their problems as, as just one example. The open data initiative that already exists around the world, Canada has largely adopted that. That's a strong first step in that direction as well. Yeah, strong first step, but there's still much more Canada can do. Like the, the, the perception that we really have anything close to what you would see in Europe in terms of open data is not correct. And even, you know, we're, we're, we're good at putting forward certain initiatives like the impact assessment, um, you know, even notions of the digital charter. It just it, it feels like we're still early and not really leaned into the work. And so there's quite a long runway for us to go to make these sort of conceptual notions um, less academic and 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 sort of um, and and much more real for companies to use and access and our citizenry to, to to be included and a part of. Shelby Austin is Deloitte's managing partner of growth and investments and AI. Inmar Givani is the senior autonomy engineer manager at Uber. Still on the topic, November 12th, the C.D. Howe Institute hosts a roundtable luncheon on AI's evolving influence in the healthcare of the future with Michael Duong, the head of personalized healthcare at Hoffman LaRoche, David Lee, the chief regulatory officer at Health Canada, and Bo Wang, the lead AI scientist at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center and the Techna Institute at the UHN. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.